Father, we do praise you. You are the creator of the universe. You are awesome. You are wonderful. And we do uh, are very grateful that you've adopted us as your children. That we can actually have a, a relationship with you, creator of the universe. And we seek you this morning and ask that you teach us from your word, especially about your son, Jesus. That we would see just how incredible, how great, how supreme Jesus is today. And that would resonate in our hearts all week long. So teach us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. It's page 817 in the Bibles we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We go, we're going through the book of Hebrews uh, verse by verse. And today we are at this section where the Son is superior to the angels. <clears throat> Pluralism is the belief of the world, uh, the earth dwellers, as if you remember the book of Revelation called them. Pluralism is the idea, the belief that all religions are equally valid and that they all lead to the same place. But the book of Hebrews destroys this philosophical insanity. Uh, the book of Hebrews declares unapologetically that Jesus is superior. We're going to see in our passage today that he is superior to the angels. But all the way through the book, it presents a case that Jesus is superior to the angels, superior to Moses, superior to the old covenant, superior to everything. I want to show you why this is important. Listen to this song and I think it re resonates why it's important that we see he is the king of kings, he is the Lord, and he's the only one that can help us. had to cut the song short. I'm sorry. But isn't that great? I mean, you get it? Wouldn't that be a great life group to go to? Okay. Yeah, that's what life groups are all about, right? Okay. But that's the point. He's bigger than anything. The true God, the real God, and he is Jesus. Hebrews declares that Jesus is superior. Look at our passage. Hebrews chapter 1, 
verse 4. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. Now, the passage continues on, uh, and we'll cover the next section next week, really bringing this same idea of his superiority to the angels. But here we see that Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, it's important for us to understand the audience of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, the writer is writing to a group of Jewish Christians who were being tempted to actually go back to Judaism because of the persecution that they were experiencing. And, uh, and so he, he's writing this to encourage them, stick with Jesus. He is superior. You don't want to go back. You want to go forward. It's also helpful for us to understand what was going on about angels at this time. Uh, a period called Second Temple Judaism, let me explain that, that phrase. That just describes the time period of the Second Temple. First Temple of the Jews was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. And then the Second Temple was built, uh, it was completed by 515 B.C., and it survived until 70 A.D. when the Romans destroyed it. So during that time period, generally approximately in between the Old and New Testament. So that time period, okay, really right at the time when Jesus came on the scene as well. Well, during that time, they, the many, not everybody, but many had begun to develop and elevate angels in an unhealthy way. So lots of writing about angels, but really elevating them sometimes even to a godlike status and so forth. And so the book of Hebrews is showing, no, it's not about the angels, it's about Jesus. And in this chapter, chapter 1, there's seven Old Testament quotes that reveal this fact. We'll see three of them today. That Jesus is superior to the angels as a son is superior to a servant. And that's the first, our section today. He starts out, verses 4 through 6a, that Jesus is the central focus. As we look at this, we see he's superior to the angels. Uh, The name he has inherited is superior. He's the son. They are not. uh, And so forth. The angels worship him. We see this idea that Jesus is the central focus. Okay, by the way, that's true of the whole book of Hebrews. So you may hear me say this more than once. He's supposed to be the center of our life. And I want to ask you that question. What is the center of your life? What is that which is most important to you that drives you to even get up in the morning? What is the main reason and purpose for your life? For instance, okay, I was thinking about my vacuum cleaner. I have a Kirby vacuum cleaner. It's actually really nice, okay? And, uh, and my Kirby vacuum cleaner, the central focus and purpose of that vacuum cleaner is to clean my carpet, right? It actually 
sucks up the dirt, and it shampoos it, does both those things. Okay. So anyway, that's my Kirby vacuum cleaner. Well, I was thinking to myself, well, what if this Kirby vacuum cleaner decided to come up with an alternate purpose? And it decided it wanted to go golfing. Okay. So my Kirby vacuum cleaner, it ends up over at Blackberry or wherever, you know, maybe the country club, and, and, it's, uh, and it goes over there. Well, it's not going to have a good time. It can't golf. It doesn't even have arms, right? All it's going to do is suck up the dirt and grass, probably get ruined the motor or whatever, all right? So the Kirby vacuum cleaner is only truly satisfied when it's fulfilling its purpose of cleaning up the dirt in my carpet, right? But why were you made? Why did God create human beings? He didn't need servants. That wasn't the point. He created us for a personal relationship with himself. And we will never be truly satisfied until that relationship is central to our lives. And it all focuses on Jesus. Jesus is the central focus of this passage. And we will only be truly satisfied when he is the central focus of our life. What we see, our passage says, is that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, if you noticed, in verse 4, it said he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. You know, what name is he talking about uh, that he inherited? Well, in the context, it must be the name Son, the Son, which that also brings up a question when it says the first quote from Psalm 2-7, it says, you are my son, today I have become your father. What is he referring to? Because he's always been the son, right? So how can it say, today you have become my son? How are we to understand that? Well, Jesus has always been the eternal son of God in relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, co-eternal, co-equal. That is the doctrine of the Trinity. But our passage is referring to him becoming the messianic son. You see, Psalm 2-7 that he's quoting from is a messianic psalm. It's about Messiah, and that's what it's referring to there. 2 Samuel 7-14, which is the next verse he quotes from the Old Testament, I will be his father and he will be my son, that also referred, that's the Davidic covenant that referred to uh, a son of David who would be the ultimate king forever sitting on the throne. So these passages are referring to this messianic son to come in the future. And Jesus fulfills that. He is the messianic son. The author of Hebrews understands these verses to refer ultimately to God's installing Jesus in his royal status as the Davidic Messiah, the covenant of David fulfilled. Uh, So when did he become a son? Well, in one sense, he was always the son, the eternal son of God. But when is our passage referring to? It helps us in regards to this, to understand how the ancient Israelites thought, okay? They didn't think like us 
21st century human beings. We read this passage. says he became a son. Must mean he wasn't a son before that. Da, 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 da. That's kind of how we think, okay? Well, let me show you another passage. Completely talks about a completely different subject, but it's showing us how the ancient Israelites thought. Look at Deuteronomy 27, verse 9, okay? This is a reference to God's relation to Israel. And in Deuteronomy 27, verse 9, he says, Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Be silent, Israel, and listen. You have now become the people of the Lord your God. Now notice there. He says, you've now become the people of the Lord your God. You probably are thinking, I thought they already were his people. I thought they were his people ever since Abraham. That was his promise, right? That Abraham's children, descendants, those are the people of God. So how can he say today, now you've become the people of God? Well, they were the people of God before, but this was a special inauguration. Look at the context. Chapter 27, they're at the altar on Mount Ebal where the covenant was formalized. So this is a special inauguration, and they're being declared the people of the Lord, though they already were. Same with the idea of Jesus being the Son of God. Acts 13, 33 actually quotes this same verse, Psalm 2, 7, and it says that he was made the Son of God at his resurrection. And so some people say, well, maybe it was when he was born of the Virgin Mary. No, according to Acts 13.33, it was at his resurrection and his exaltation. You see, try to think like an ancient Israelite, okay? Put your ancient Israelite hats on. Got it? They're reading this. They're understanding this is the special inauguration. He's being declared the Son of God in all of his glory. The formal declaration where he's inaugurated as the messianic son. Uh, But he was always the divine son of God. This phrase, son of God or children of God, is used in different ways throughout the Bible. The first way that we typically think of is that Jesus is the eternally begotten son of God. Look at John 1.18. I don't have a page number. Sorry about that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 1.18 This is a classic passage about Jesus. It says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Notice that Jesus is God and he is in relationship to the Father as the Son, eternally begotten. So in one sense, we see this phrase being used of Jesus that there's always been this relationship between father and son with God the father and God the son. Um, Kind of think of it like this, okay? If uh, a cat has a baby, what is it? You guys are good. Yeah, kittens. And, and, And those are just little cats, right? Same nature, cat nature, right? What about dogs? If a dog has a baby, what does it have? Puppies, yeah, right? Little dogs, right? Same nature, same dogs. Okay, so if God were to have a baby, what would it be? God, right? Same nature, right? But 
obviously one of the aspects of God is that he's eternal. So we're not talking about a time in which Jesus became the son. He's always had this relationship, and this is kind of an analogy in its use here. He's always had a relationship with the Father. The one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this wonderful relationship throughout eternity. So he's called the eternally begotten Son of God. But in our passage, and in Acts 13, 33, he's also referred to as the Son of God, inaugurated as the Messianic Son, enthroned as King. Now, though our passage is contrasting Jesus and angels, and he says the angels are never said, you are my son, today I become your father, but angels are sometimes called sons of God. Job 1.6 refers to that, but in a different sense. See, a completely different sense here. The angels are called sons of God, uh, but they're not begotten sons. They're not eternal like Jesus is. In fact, we are adopted children. We're called the children of God, aren't we? Right? John, or 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. Now, that is an incredible privilege because, you know, if you're like me, and I know you are, you're a sinner. <laughs> None of us deserve that at all. That Jesus died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven so that we could enter into this relationship and not a relationship of, of uh, servant or, or, you know, just uh, menial, whatever, a relationship of father and son, but he adopts us into the family. And so we have this, this incredible personal relationship. Got another little sidetrack here, but John particularly uses two different words. He uses huios, which is son, only for Jesus. So in John's writings, it's not true for everybody, but in John's writings, he only uses huios to refer to, this, to Jesus. But for us, when he says, calls us sons of God, that's King James, he's actually children, is technion in the Greek. So we're the children of God, but by adoption, okay? So we're adopted children. So we see these different ways in which this idea is brought about. But Jesus is being contrasted with the angels here. You are my son. Today I become your father. He is the inaugurated messianic son who has always been the eternal begotten son of God. Then our passage, verse 6, it says, it says Jesus is called the firstborn. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, other passages, Colossians and others, refer to him as the firstborn over creation. And so then our 21st century minds, we look at that and we go, if he's the firstborn, that means he was born, right? Not necessarily. Put back on your ancient Israelite hat, okay? Firstborn in Israel typically was the person born first, the boy born first, who got most of the inheritance, of the family, okay? That was how they worked. But many times, this idea of firstborn was used in the sense of preeminence. So not even necessarily born first, but the preeminent one over whatever the, uh, the context of the passage. For instance, in Psalm 89, 27, David is called the firstborn. He was actually the last born in his family. 
He was the youngest in his family, but he's called the firstborn. So some people, well, maybe it's because he, he was king. He wasn't even the first king. Saul was the first king of Israel. So it's clear from the passage, he's not referring to when he was born. He's referring to his preeminence over. David was the king that all other kings were judged by. If you read First and Second Kings and you go through and you look at all the different kings of Israel and Judah, they're all judged by how they lined up with David, who was the ultimate king. He was the king who had a who had, his heart was after God, and all the other kings were judged in that line. But also because of the prophecies, the Davidic covenant, that someday. From his line, the ultimate king is going to sit on the throne forever, and that will be the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus. Okay, So that's what it's referring to here as firstborn. But notice in the context, he's showing Jesus is superior to the angels. It's all about Jesus. He is the central focus. But then he goes on and talks about the angels, and we get to actually learn some things about angels in this passage uh, without going overboard because remember that's what the ancient Israelites they kind of messed up at times uh, or at least the uh, second temple Judaism uh, angels are servants who worship the son look what it says let all God's angels worship him in speaking of the angels he says he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire notice they're called servants here and uh, Angels, spirits, or winds can be another translation of that, uh, of flames of fire. So here we see that angels are servants who worship the sun. Now, notice it's not about the angels, is it? Okay? Even when he's talking about angels, he says the angels worship Jesus, right? So still the focus is on Jesus, even when he's talking about the angels, It's not about the angels. It's still all about the sun. Um, By the way, I have a sign here. Uh, There are two things you need to know about God. There is one, and you aren't him. Okay? (laughs) I think that phrase actually came from Rudy. Remember the movie Rudy? Okay, but uh, yeah. There is one, and you aren't him. We're constantly trying to make it all about me, okay? Well, back then they were trying to make it all about the angels. It's not about me. It's not about the angels. It's all about Jesus. Now, I want you to look at the context of this quote, okay? This quote is from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. But I want to look at the whole context to see what he's talking about. It's fascinating. Look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 39 through 43. In this passage, we see the quote, but let's look at the context to see who's talking, all right? Look at verse 39. It says, see now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. Who's talking? Yeah, Jesus is the right answer, but God, right? Okay, yeah, God is talking. And he says, there is no God besides me. Once again, the Bible very clearly says pluralism is wrong. All other gods are false gods. The book of Deuteronomy actually says all other gods are demons in disguise 
as gods. He says, there is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and solemnly swear as surely as I live forever when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment. I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. Rejoice, you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. That's the true God. (laughs) Okay, when you look at this God, uh, he is incredible. In context, God is speaking. So in quoting this about Jesus in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is saying very clearly, Jesus is God. Look at this. How is he described here? Jesus is the mighty warrior. He says, no one can deliver them out of my hand. He speaks of flashing sword and judgment and arrows drunk with blood and the slain and so forth. This is Jesus. He is the... He is the mighty warrior who will destroy his enemies. There is no wimpy, milk-toast God being described here. In in the the little box you might have put him in. Oh, I just want a nice, happy God who blesses me when I need blessing. That isn't the real one. Okay, now he does bless us. But we got to take the whole one or none at all, all right? This is God, and it's Jesus. He's the mighty warrior. Let me read some things from a couple authors. Thomas Trevathan in his book, The Beauty of God's Holiness, he says, God's perfect goodness, his moral holiness, demands that he stand opposed to evil and sin, just as light stands opposed to darkness. The two are incompatible. And because this holiness, this light is divine goodness, his opposition is not the passive resistance of a mere spectator. His holiness rises up in active resistance to all evil, to all that cheapens and distorts and destroys his creatures. You see, evil and sin is what hurts us. And so naturally God is opposed to that. The Holy One in His perfect goodness is actively and intensely set against evil. He judges it as the only holy judge of all His creatures. Another book, Donald McCullough, The Trivialization of God. He begins by talking about a quote from the Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody remember the Chronicles of Narnia? You remember The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? The movies? Did you see the movies at least? Okay, Prince Caspian and all that. Well, this is in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis describes the first time the children hear about Aslan. Is, Is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the sun, the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. 
That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. If you've got a grip, have a grasp of God like this. He goes on and he explains, quoting from the book of Hebrews in a later passage, our God is a consuming fire. As children, we were told not to play with matches, and as adults, we treat fire with caution. We must. Fire demands respect for its regal estate. It will not be touched. It will be approached with care, and it wields its scepter for ill or for good. With one spark, it can condemn a forest to ashes and a home to memory as ghostly as the smoke rises from the charred remains of the family album. Or with a single flame, it can crown a candle with power to warm a romance and set to dancing a fireplace blaze that defends against the cold. Fire is dangerous to be sure, but we cannot live without it. Fire destroys, but it also sustains life. The blaze of holiness admits no disrespect. Its boundaries cannot be trespassed. But this very distinctness is the fire that thaws our frozen hearts, the fire that draws us into relationship with God and with one another, the fire that cleanses even as it purges. Jesus is the mighty warrior who will destroy his enemies. But as we walk through this passage in Deuteronomy a little further, we see that Jesus will avenges the blood of his servants. Verse 43, rejoice you nations with his people for he will avenge the blood of his servants. A reminder of Revelation chapter 19 as we were going through the book of Revelation, we saw that uh, there's gonna be this horrible tribulation for God's people, but then Jesus comes uh, and destroys the Antichrist and he avenges the blood of his people. We need to understand we will suffer, but we are vindicated in the end. And it says back in Deuteronomy that Jesus makes atonement and he makes atonement for his land and his people. A clear reference to the crucifixion. That Jesus Christ, by dying on the cross, paid the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. He was the ultimate sacrifice that brought about atonement, that brought about forgiveness for our sins in such a way that we could then enter into relationship with the holy God. We can't come to God on our own. We can't come to God with our own good works because none of our works are good enough. But we come to God by putting our trust in Jesus that he died on the cross for our sins. Then we can come right to God. So he makes atonement in the land for his people. This is the good news of the gospel. The reason why Jesus came, okay, to help us so that we could enter into this relationship with the creator of the universe. Now, not sure if you noticed, but we never actually saw our passage in Hebrews. Maybe you didn't notice that, but remember our passage, the quote is, let all God's angels worship him. Well, that wasn't in there in verse 43, 
it says, rejoice, you nations, with his people. But if you notice, you probably have a footnote. That's in the Masoretic text. But in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were before the Masoretic text, and in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, actually the, old, the, the Bible of the original disciples, and the Bible mostly quoted in the book of Hebrews, the Septuagint, has this phrase, and let all the angels worship him. This God is to be worshiped, and here we see he is Jesus, and so the angels were to worship Jesus. Now, angels are God's servants. He calls them servants of flames of fire. As servants, uh, these angels uh, worship God, and they take care of God's people. We'll see that next week in verse 14. But angels are God's servants. I want to challenge you when you go to your life group this week, okay? Ask each other, how many of you think you may have had an encounter with an angel? You will be amazed at how many stories there are that there are there. Uh, I've already heard some today from the first service, okay? I, uh, one that I want to point out, Steve Miller, not the Steve Miller band, Steve Miller, but a different Steve Miller, the one who started Helps International, the ministry to Guatemala, okay? Steve Miller tells of how when he first went to Guatemala to begin this ministry of Helps to minister to the poor in Guatemala, that he was standing by the helicopter, and he's a tall guy, and he didn't know it, but the propeller was right there, and he was going to walk right into the propeller, because it's blurry when it's going like this, so he didn't see it, and he felt this boom on his chest, boom, and it stopped him, and then he looked, and there was the propeller. If he'd walked into the propeller, there would be no Helps International today. He was the one who began that ministry. He believes and I agree with him, an angel stopped him. And, uh, but ask, ask about this because angels are real. This is what we're seeing. And it says here, let the angels worship God. The first thing we see about angels is they worship Jesus. One example of this is Isaiah 6 where they worship God. And remember, our passage calls them Servants, flames of fire, that idea of flames and fire, we'll see also in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, uh, this is the great uh, vision that Isaiah has of God, and he describes this vision. Look what he says here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim. Now, seraphim are a type of angel, okay? It literally means, seraph means burning ones. Seraphim is just plural, so burning ones. So thus, this idea of angels being of flames of fire. So the burning ones, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And we don't have time to read the rest of it, but an incredible passage, incredible vision. But we see the angels worshiping God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. That phrase, Lord Almighty, in, uh, I think the ESV translates it, Lord of hosts. It literally means Yahweh of the army. That will become important as we uh, move on as far as this idea of the angels. But here we see the angels worshiping God. Uh, but, but I want you to turn to John 12, 41. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Sorry, I don't have a page number there. John chapter 12, verse 41. Because in John uh, 12... Just before this verse, he quotes Isaiah 6. So he's quoting this scene, this vision of the angels worshiping God. But look at how John describes and, and, uh, and interprets this. Verse 41, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Who did Isaiah see? Jesus. The angels worshiped. Jesus, because Jesus is God. That's what we see in our passage. Let all God's angels worship him. And so the angels worship Jesus. They are created beings, created by God for a particular purpose. Created beings who are winds and flames of fire. Like I said, the, he makes his angels spirits. That can also be translated, he makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. I think the point of comparison between angels and these forces of nature is in both the sense of being changeable as well as being swift and destructive. Jesus is the unchangeable, immutable one, as we will see later in Hebrews. But the, book, but the angels are used as God's army to advance the kingdom. Remember, Yahweh of the armies. It's referring to this angelic host, this angelic army that he uses to advance his kingdom and to bring about his will. I want you to turn to another passage that brings out these angels with the flames of fire going on as an army, okay? Look at 2 Kings 6, verses 15 through 17. In 2 Kings chapter 6, the context, Elisha the prophet, he's just kicking back, enjoying himself, but his servant sees this giant army from the king of Aram, who was the enemy, surrounding them, ready to get them. Okay, that's the context. Look at verse 15. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You can just imagine him going, huh? <laughs> and Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See that? That's what was there. The army, they didn't stand a chance. They go, they blind that army and the, the whole bit. So no big, no big deal. That's why Elisha wasn't worried at all, okay? But here we see this 
this uh, plan of God with this angelic host and these angels, they serve God and they worship God that, and they take care of us at times as well. Now, one thing I do want to say that our passage doesn't bring up, but we do need to understand it as far as this battle is concerned, and that is that one-third of the angels followed Satan. We saw that in the book of Revelation. One-third of the angels at the beginning of time refused to worship Jesus. They wanted worship themselves, and so they followed Satan, and they fell and became the demons that we read about in the Scriptures. Demons are fallen angels. The, the, the demonic realm is real. Whether we can see it or not, it is there. There is a spiritual war going on right now. And the big question is, how do we fight? I believe total allegiance to the king, not ourselves, is the answer. We say, I follow you, Jesus, Whatever, whenever, total allegiance to you, absolute surrender. I know that you've got my back. That's how we fight this battle. Now, we do need to help people who are struggling, people who are hurting. We need to reach out and help them. But the best way is to point them to Jesus, not themselves. That's what Modern psychology says you need to look within you and you can find the human potential. And that, that's scary because sometimes it actually works for them and keeps them away from God. But it doesn't ultimately work. No, we don't point them to themselves and teach them how to navel gaze and focus on themselves. That's what got them into the problem. We don't get them to focus on us. We don't get them to focus on a super guru. Either. We get them to focus on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. He is the solution to their problem. So, of course, we seek to help people. We pray for people, but we point them to Jesus. When the focus is on Jesus and his mission, discover why God made you to find out your mission. Your focus is on him. Your allegiance is to him. That's when you'll stop, start forgetting about your problems, or they'll at least seem less. Because it's all about him, not me anyway. If I die, I get to go to heaven. No big deal, right? We also have this giant army around, you know, that we can't see called angels and so forth. So we focus on Jesus and the mission because Jesus is superior. No other gods are like him. Only he is worthy of worship, worthy of being the center of our life. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we see this passage and it exalts the Son. And we are truly amazed. We do ask you to, to help us. We are so frail. It, it's so easy for us to get caught up in our own stuff. And we know that the solution is not to focus on the stuff. It's to focus on you. Help us. Help us, each of us, to encourage one another 
to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to live this out where you are the center of our lives. And I pray that if there's someone here this morning who maybe they know about you, but they don't know you personally, they've never truly entered into this relationship of father, son, or father, daughter, I pray that you'd draw them to yourself and they'd put their trust in you even today. Help us all to fix our eyes on Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship our God.